But uh, I thought we'd start off with a, a fish story again today. Uh, some of you heard me share my one last week. Uh, but I thought we'd start off once it's so hot that we might start out with an ice fishing story. Because uh, we do so much of that in this area. But uh, we dream of that, particularly this time of the year. And so there was a story of, a, of Mr. Baker who, uh, who wanted to learn how to ice fish. And so he got out and he researched and got all kinds of books about uh, fishing, uh, particularly going ice fishing. And he read up on those and he got the equipment that he needed. And then, then he headed out to the ice. And as he got on the ice, he, he picked out a, just a great place, he thought. Uh, and he, he got down and used the tool. I have no idea what it's called, but he, he cuts this hole in the, in the ice. And he, he starts to do that. And all of a sudden... He hears this big, booming voice. There's no fish under the ice. So he stops. He picks up his stool. He picks up his other supplies and he moves uh, to another spot and he sits down. And he gets all comfy and he kind of makes this hole again and he goes to, uh, to start to, to, to move. And, and then all of a sudden he hears again this this voice that comes out from above, from heaven above. There are no fish. Under the ice. So okay. So he, he picks up his stuff and all he goes down to a farther end on the ice. And he, again, he once it goes again to crank uh, to, to cut a hole in the ice. And then a frightening voice comes out. There is no fish under the ice. He gets up. He looks heavenward. And he says, is it you, Lord? And then a very clear voice says, no, it's the manager of the ice rink. It's pretty bad, isn't it? That is a silly story. It is. But we have a prophet who has done a very silly thing as we enter into the book of Jonah. We have a prophet who gets a command from God. A gracious God, a merciful God, a, pa- a compassionate God, a God who is sovereign and in control of all things. And he turns and he rebels from this command from God and he goes. And by the way, uh, just for you guys that are drawing to keep you paying attention, uh, I made a little mistake on a sign this week. And if you can tell me or last week, if you could tell me where I made my correction, just if you could figure it out, you come up and you tell me. Uh, not yet, Madeline, you know, uh, but you come and tell me after the service what that is. But I want to encourage you again to to draw as I tell this story uh, about Jonah. And as we continue the story of this prophet who, who fled from God, who was on his way, he was getting as far away from God as he could. Matter of fact, if we were the uh, if this were the first time that we had heard the story, we might have thought as uh some of the early listeners of this story thought is what happened or what was going to happen to Jonah. As we left off last week in verse 16 of chapter one of Jonah, Jonah had been tossed into the ocean. In the midst of him being tossed and God calming the seas, pagan sailors had turned to the knowledge of the one true God. And they're left there praising him. But we're left wondering, what happens to Jonah? Is he a goner? Is it over with? Is God done with his prophets? Look what it says here 
in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. He's swallowed by a fish. Now, I want you to realize, though, that this is a story more more about or less about a fish and more about God. Because we thought that God was perhaps done with Jonah. But remember what, what kind of God that we have. We have a God full of grace, a God full of mercy and compassion. And God's not done with Jonah. See, Jonah is more than a fish story. Jonah is a story and a testimony of the character of our God. And we see our God in action here. Matter of fact, the phrase and the Lord, that is, the Lord is Yahweh. Anytime you see the capital letters Lord all the way across, it's, re- it's referring to Yahweh, Jehovah, the self-existent God, the covenant God of Israel, the I Am, that God. Or as Jonah told the sailors, the God who created the heavens and the seas. We see that this God, that, that, that Yahweh appointed a great fish. This, this stresses the, the combination of Yahweh with the verb, stresses the, the sovereignty and the power of God over the fish of the sea. To accomplish His purposes. And my children went to uh, uh, SeaWorld Back in May, it was their first time, and they were amazed by some of the, the different tricks and things that the, the trainers could do with the fish. But let me tell you something. God didn't have to change or train any fish. All God had to do, all our sovereign Lord Yahweh had to do, is He always had to say, hey, grace. By the way, that's the name of the fish. Hey, fish, grace. See my prophet over there? Swallow him. And he did it. See, God's in control. God is sovereign over all things. And he's moving in his creation to graciously pursue his servants. See, God is a great and a powerful God. But again, I think the major point of this book is not so much on a great fish, but it's on a great God. A God who can hurl storms, who can calm storms in a minute. A God who can turn the hearts of a pagan sailors to Him. A God who can, once on His command, swallow His prophet with a fish. That's our God. He is sovereign. He's in control. So what is God up to? Not only is He doing something great and powerful, but He's being gracious who remember Jonah chose, rather than I believe, to repent, to tell those sailors to turn this ship around, go back to Joppa. He said, I'd rather die. But God, being the gracious God that He is, said, not so fast. I love you. I'm coming after you. I'm not done with you yet. And so He sends a fish. I often wonder, what would it have been like to be swallowed by a fish? What would it have been like? By the way, we don't know what kind of fish this is. We know stories, and we know stories of of, uh, uh, fish. Uh, We know of of a great, uh, what I think they call it, a whale shark. That's a whale shark, by the way, of swallowing people. We also know of a story of, of a sperm whale. 
what's called a sperm whale sail, uh, swallowing a man. Matter of fact, it was in February 1891. Some whale fishermen were down near the Falkland Islands. And uh, as they were out there, they, they spotted a sperm whale and they sent out two ships, two little smaller ships to go after this whale to harpoon them and to bring them in. Well, as they were doing this, one of the whale's uh, tail flipped and, and flipped one of the ships over. One of the small little boats over. One of the men ended up drowning, but another man named James Bartley, he ended up being uh, going missing. Well, they went ahead and they were able to finally get the sperm whale and they brought it in and they began to chop it up and, and take off the blubber and all those things. And then the next morning, they had lifted up the stomach. And as they lifted up the stomach, they noticed some kind of a spasmodic motion that was going on inside. And as they cut open the stomach, out came James Bartley. After they took some seawater and poured it all over him, he was refreshed and revived, and he was alive. Matter of fact, this is what he says of, of his experience. He says he remembers the sensation of being thrown out of the boat and into the sea. He was then encompassed by a great darkness and felt as though he was slipping along a smooth passage of some sort that seemed to move and carry him forward. The sensation lasted but a short time when he, when he realized he had more room. He felt about him, and his hand came in contact with a yielding, slimy substance that seemed to shrink from his touch. It finally dawned on him that he had been swallowed by the whale. He could easily breathe, but he, the heat was terrible. It was of scorching, stifling nature, but it seemed to open up the pores of his skin and draw out his vitality. His skin, where it was exposed to the action of the gastric juices, his face, his neck, and hands were bleached to a deadly whiteness. And took on the appearance of parchments and never recovered its natural appearance. Though his health did not seem affected by this terrible experience. Oh, how would you like that? What's amazing, though, as terrible and as frightening as this experience is, when we begin to unfold the rest of this text, Jonah doesn't write about the terrible experience of being inside of a great fish. Actually, as we turn to Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, what we see Jonah begin to do is he does not complain about being inside the fish, but he actually speaks of his distress going down and the deliverance that God would provide. Look what it says there in verse 1, chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out in my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, Sheol being a, a reference to the place or the, of the abode of the dead. He's not literally dead, but he, he feels like he's on the edge of life. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. What Jonah gets us insight into here is he gives us insight into the process of what we picked up in Jonah chapter 1 as we talked about how the, the literary device was used to keep pointing out how he kept going down and down and down. And here he begins to recount how he began to go down as he was drowning in the water. And he speaks of that. You see, sometimes God will let us go down. Because as one man said, God would rather see you anywhere than living in disobedience. 
God was willing to let Jonah go down. He was not even willing to let him die, but to go down in his rebellion because he desired to see him anywhere but in disobedience to him. So here God was turning up the knots of sorts. He was putting Jonah in a place of great distress so that he might get Jonah's attention, perhaps turn him back to God. God is the God who loves us so much, he will discipline us. Again, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines Matter of fact, in the surrounding verses of that verse right there, Warren Wiersbe gets four things of how we can respond to discipline of God in our lives. One is we can despise God's discipline and fight. How many of you have done that before? That God disciplines and instead of responding to it, we, we fight and we continue to go down. And, and Jonah certainly did that in chapter 1. Sometimes we can be discouraged and, and faint. We don't even fight. We just kind of give up. And I, and I sense, I think we even see Jonah doing that. Instead of, uh, he is so discouraged and faint, he doesn't want to, to obey God. He just says, I'm done with life. Just throw me off the boat. Or, number three, we can resist discipline and invite more discipline. And that's really what's happening to Jonah. He's resisted God. He's resisting his discipline. And God says, I'm not done. I'm going to get your attention yet. And fourth, we can do this. We submit to God and mature in our faith walk. And I believe this is what is beginning to happen to Jonah on reflection of the distress he went through, but also the deliverance that God would provide. Now, verses 3 through 7 give us more details, or it gives us the thoughts of really wondering what was going through the mind of Jonah as he was going down in the ocean. Verse 3 says this, For you cast me into the deep, into the, the hearts of the seas. Now, if we quickly read over that, we'll, we'll miss something. But, but ask that verse this question. Who, who cast them into the deep? What's it say? This is you had cast me in the deep. Well, you said, wait a minute. In chapter two, it was the sailors that that threw Jonah over into the water. But Jonah knows something. He knows that it was God who brought the sailors to that point. He remembers how the sailors at first did not want to throw him into the ocean. And he remembers how that storm that God had hurled on the seas, how God had turned it up. He probably remembers how those sailors even prayed, Lord, Yahweh, don't hold this against us. But yet, they threw him in the ocean. See, what Jonah is beginning to do is Jonah is beginning to recognize that God is sovereign and that God is pursuing him and that God is coming after him. As he says, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. He recognizes that God is, is after this disobedient servant because God would rather have us anywhere than in our disobedience. 
Now look what he says here. Look how he describes this. And the currents engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. I just want you to imagine yourself in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico after one of the worst storms of the year. He's being engulfed by the currents and the breakers. They're passing over him. So I said, I have been expelled from your sights. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. This is verse five. He says, water encompassed me to the point of death. So just imagine he's going down. The water is surrounding him now. The great deep engulfed me. He's going down further. He's going down so far. It says the weeds were wrapped around my head. Where does vegetation come from? Well, it's it's comes up from the bottom. And he's sinking. And he's recounting the experiences as he's sinking and getting lower and lower that the, the seaweed and the weeds from the, the ocean's bottom are beginning to surround him. He says, I descend into the roots of the mountains or the roots of the mountains in the bottom of the ocean. The earth with his bars was around me forever. Jo- Jonah is drowning. He is taking in water and sinking to the point of the bottom. Jonah thinks he's a goner. Remember, he thinks he's so much a, go- a goner that he expresses it. I have been expelled from your sight. He thought that God had forgotten him. But let me ask you, did God lose sight of Jonah? No. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever thought that God has lost sight of you? Let me give you the answer to that. He hasn't. God did not lose sight of his rebellious prophet Jonah. And he never lost sight of you in the midst of your rebellion or any other situation. His eyes are ever upon you. But one thing he has done to Jonah is he's boxed Jonah in. There's nowhere else for Jonah to turn. There are no boats for for Jonah to hop on and run away from God from. There There are no cities to be reached. Only God to be looked up to. I've heard the application made this way, that sometimes God will break us down to cause us to lay down so that we might look up again to him. Sometimes God will break us down to make us lay down so that we might look up to him again. That's how much he loves us. That he'll discipline us in that way. So when you are going down in sin... What can we learn from Jonah? What can we learn from him? What, what things, how might we respond when we're sinking and we're going down and down and down? We're at perhaps even the bottom of the ocean as a result of our sin and rebellion in our life. What, what do we do? What can we do? I think the first thing is we can look back up to God. Jonah says, nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Jonah didn't feel close to God, (laughs) but he made the best choice he had made throughout this whole story. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple, where your presence is. I will turn my hope to you again. See, God has stripped him of everything else that were he, he could put us hope in nothing else but God alone. 
But God was very present and ready to bring him up from the pit. And I don't know where you are in your life, but God is very present and he's ready to bring you up from the pit. If you will but look up to him. He's there. Then verse six says this, but you have brought up my life from the pits, O Lord, my God. I don't know, but I tend to think it's in that moment that he's once again thinking of that sudden immersion that he had into darkness and a little slippery ride that he had down into a more open space. I think that's when that, that fish named Grace showed up. Right on God's cue. And he brought Jonah up from the pit. That's not the only thing that Jonah thought he was going down. He also thought this. Look at verse 7, what it says here. He says, while I was fainting away, I, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. That is not only to look back up to God, but he, he, he re- recalled or he remembered or he renewed his faith. In God's character and promises. It is as, as Jonah's life was fainting away, or as seven versions say, as it was ebbing away, just as the water ebbs away from the seashore, he remembered God. Now, in the Old Testament, to say he remembered God is a lot more than just all of a sudden, oh yeah, God, you're, you're here, or you're on my mind. It encompasses the idea of, of more of a theological idea. Of remembering who God is. Remembering his, his ability, his character, and remembering his promises. And so as Jonah looks up to God, he, he begins to remember who Yahweh is. That he's the God of grace. He's the God of compassion. He's certainly a God who is sovereign and in control. He's a God who can deliver. I think we see Jonah's remembrance of the character of God in this statement. If you drop down in verse 8, he says, Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. I take this as, as, a, as a realization in Jonah's life that he saw in his actions, which, by the way, he may not have been worshiping an a idol built of stone, but I believe he was worshiping an idol of himself. That is, he wanted his way of doing things, not God's way of doing things. He wanted his will, will done, not God's will done. And that's an idol. An idol is anything we put in place of God in our lives. And Jonah realized that when you do that, you forsake their faithfulness. You forsake what the word here is chesed. It's, that's the root word. Some take it as faithfulness, some as mercy, some as, as grace. I tend to lean more towards the idea that it's, it's, it's grace in this context. He's realizing when he turns to God and when anyone else, who, by the way, is reading this letter later, when they turn to other idols, which the people of Israel who were reading this letter were, they're forsaking Grace. They're forsaking the blessings and the faithfulness and the mercy that God has available. So he remembers the Lord. He looks back up to God. He, he remembers and renews his faith. 
But then he also cries out to him for help. If you back up to verses two, remember, he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me and I, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. My question is, why didn't Jonah do that sooner? Why didn't he cry out for help sooner? Sometimes I think, although I don't know if this is the case to be in this passage, but sometimes I, I think that we think we have to get our, all our acts together before we cry out to God. We think we've got to kind of get things lined up before we cry out to help. Don't ever buy into that lie. God wants to meet you right where you are. He wants to meet you in the midst of your rebellion and your sin. And he's waiting. Don't wait to cry out for help. Because really there's no real work that we can do of ourselves to get ourselves ready to come back to God. Actually, it's a work that God must do in our lives. To bring us back to himself. While I was fainting away, he says, I remembered the Lord. Verse seven. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So he cried out. He prayed to God and his prayer. It arrived. It came into his temple and God heard it. As I was looking Ways to illustrate this, I came along the story of Michelle Akers. I don't know if you guys know who Michelle Akers is, but Michelle Akers, uh, I can remember this. She was a, uh, a great soccer star. She was a part of the first national team, uh, women's national team, and became a starter on the soccer team. As it says, she was uh, voted as the Women's Athlete of the Year in 1985. She 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 scored some winning goals in the first ever women's World Cup. She was an amazing athlete. She went on to sign several endorsements that paid well. She played professionally in Sweden and she was a very tenacious person. She even I thought this was cool. She even was so tenacious and so competitive that she tried out for the Dallas Cowboys as a kicker. And in her practice, she kicked a 52 yard field goal. All right. I can't kick a five-yard field goal, okay? Can't do it, all right? Michelle was also a a Christian. She had put her faith and trust in Christ as a high schooler. But as she went into college, she turned her back on God. In the midst of all the success that she had, some things began to become unmanageable in her life. She began to deal with extreme fatigue. And it was so frustrating to her because she was someone who could always bounce back from injury and just bounce right back and be able to go again. But she was, she was overwhelmed with this sense of fatigue. She came to find out that she was suffering from chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome. It was a, it was a debilitating disease to her. She couldn't bear it any longer that she was no longer the best in the world. That's just something that just ate at her. And then when her marriage of four years broke up in 1994, Michelle reached the end of herself. 
And by the way, just let me put this in here. Just because you have sickness or trial in your life, it doesn't mean you're receiving the discipline of God. Let me just get that clear to you. But in Michelle's case, it was. She recognized it for that. Now, sick and alone, one of her strength coaches invited her to church. And it was through this time and this time of retrospection that Michelle began to realize she needed to get things right with God. And here's what she said. Looking back, she explains, I think God was gently, patiently tapping me on the shoulder and calling my name for years. But I continuously brushed him off saying, hey, I know what I'm doing. I can make these decisions. Leave me alone. Then I think he finally said, "Okay." crossed his arms and looked at me sadly because he knew I was going to make a lot of mistakes by ignoring him. He knew I would be hurting in the future. It took total devastation before I would acquiesce and say, "Okay, God, you can have my life. Please help me. Sometimes God's got to let us down and break us down. So we might lay down, so we might look back up and cry for help. And that's actually a gracious thing. Look at Jonah's response to this. Jonah says in verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you. Not only does he cry out, will you help me? He says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation. Is from the Lord. Not only does he cry out for help, but I think Jonah, though he needs much more of it, as we'll see in the rest of the story, that Jonah is making repentance towards God. And he's making efforts to rededicate his life. He admits to the idols within himself, I believe. He, he, repay, he rededicates himself that, hey, I, I will, I will pay those vows, which was certainly were part of that vow was to go back to Nineveh. Here's the thing. When the Lord breaks you down and makes you lay down and then delivers you, don't just settle for just getting out of the trouble. People do that, by the way. God is gracious and He delivers them. But the reason He disciplines us is so that we might repent, that we might rededicate and again walk in his will. Don't miss that when God delivers you, when he does such a gracious act. Jonah goes on, he says, but I will sacrifice you with a voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. That is, Jonah looks also looks forward to Giving thanks and praise to God. What do you think he's going to give thanks and praise to God for? He's going to give thanks to God for his deliverance. But I also think that he's going to give thanks to God for his discipline. Have you ever done that? Have you ever known in your life when you were disciplined by God? Have you ever given him thanks for that? Through great conviction, I've done that some in my life. I can remember some things that I went through in my life, and I can remember times where God just really knocked me out at the knees, and I didn't like it at all. But as I look back 
And when I saw what happened to me and I saw that all he delivered me from because of his loving discipline in my life, my voice could cry out and say, thank you, God. Thank you for delivering me from that. Oh, might we do that? Might we give praise to a God who loves us so much that he'll pursue us into the bottom of our ocean of our own making? He'll deliver us through his discipline. He'll bring us up back to himself. And so Jonah yells in the stomach of the great fish. Here he is in the middle of that slimy mess, utter darkness. And he says, salvation is of the Lord. How many of us yell that in the inside of a fish? Salvation is of the Lord. And then look at verse 10 says. As this praise is coming forth, then God and his sovereignty. He said, then the Lord commanded the fish. He said, Grace, I want you to go do something for me. And the fish did. And it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. See, this, this fish didn't just happen upon the shore, all right? He wasn't just floating along and said, oh, here's the shore. I'm sick of my stomach, Bula. all right? God commanded him. He directed him. So I can just imagine all this time as Jonah's reflecting the stomach of the fish, the fish is just kind of making its way through SeaWorld here and just, and just right at the right time, he barfs Jonah up on the beach. I said that for you kids. Can you imagine the scene on the on the, the seashore? Some older fisherman looking at this guy coming out of a fish covered with barf. Jonah probably just went by him and said, salvation is of the Lord. <laughs> if you say so. Salvation is from the Lord. A few days ago, I witnessed one of the, the scariest things I'd seen in a long time. I was at a, a pool party, and adults were all around the pool, and the kids and the children and the teenagers were all in there swimming. And uh, it's a beautiful place to go, go swimming. But as we were sitting there, <clears throat> out uh, as I looked forward and I was sitting to a gentleman next to me, uh, I saw a young child who had wandered a little far too far away from the place they were supposed to be. Had a real shallow area, but if you weren't careful, if you go too far, too far away from mom and dad tell you to stay, you're going to get in trouble. And this guy did. It it scared me to death. I, I got up and fortunately the guy next to me got up even faster and he was a trained lifeguard, and before I knew it, he jumped in and uh, pulled that child up. And I, and I still vividly remember seeing that, that child and his, his, just his head there and the hands just kind of fighting to, to, to get up. And my friend next to me, who pulled him out of the water and brought him over to me and handed me to that child. And, and I've been thinking about this this whole week. And I put that child in my arms, and he wasn't even my child, but I, I gave the kid a kiss. I, I just felt for him. I, I couldn't imagine what, what he, was, he was going through. And, and I remember him turning and giving him to his mother. And boy, was he glad to see his mom. 
the rest of the time at that party, I, I watched that little guy. I love that guy. I watched him, and boy, did he stay close to his father. He stayed by him. When he got in the water, or near the water, he was by his dad. And I thought of that story in light of what what happens here. God is ever-present and all around us. And God is a great lifeguard. And He's eagerly waiting to jump in and deliver us and bring us up from our sin and rebellion. If we'll but turn to Him and look and reach out to Him. God is the God who disciplines, but He's also that lifeguard. He's that God who will deliver us so that He might pour out His grace upon us. And I think when God sees us and He sees us struggling in our own sin and rebellion, I think His feelings, that God is a God of feeling, that His feelings are, are similar to my own feelings that I had, that, that he, he feels for us, children. That He hurts for us. That he doesn't want to see us there. And He's eagerly waiting to pull us out. If we'll but look to Him for deliverance from our sin. That is our God. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Dear God, we come. We come to praise You. We thank You for who You are. We thank You, Lord, for this story about a prophet named Jonah. And Lord, many of us in here in our own lives and hearts, we could call ourselves Jonah. I know I could. And Lord, I thank You for loving us and caring for us. And Lord, coming after us. My prayer is today, Lord, if there's any of us here today who are walking from You, or we're running from You, Lord, we're going down in our sin of rebellion. Lord, may we look up to you and know that you're ever present, eagerly waiting to deliver us. Lord, may we turn to you. Lord, may you, may you transform and change hearts and bring them back into relationship, or I should say back into fellowship with you, Lord. Lord, we just give you praise and we give you thanks as Jonah did. In the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.